Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Virtual IBD Clinic Updates in Diagnostic, Therapeutic, and Prognostic Strategies is provided by RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And this activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Coherus Biosciences, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, I'm Dr. Sushila Dalal and I'm a gastroenterologist at the University of Chicago. In this CME activity, I'll be discussing the clinical case of a newly diagnosed IBD patient, as well as principles and guidelines for the diagnosis and medical management of IBD. We'll first start with the case. Jack is a 23-year-old male college student with no past medical history who presents for evaluation of weight loss, abdominal cramps, and non-bloody diarrhea for three months. He also complains of mouth sores, joint pain, and anal pain with defecation. His symptoms started about three months prior to this visit. Originally, he was told by his primary care physician that he probably had irritable bowel syndrome. However, over the past month, his symptoms progressed, including a 30-pound weight loss. Jack's family history is significant for his mother with rheumatoid arthritis and his uncle with celiac disease. He denies a family history of IBD. He's a college junior who denies smoking, alcohol, or illicit drug use. He denies any recent travel, camping, or drinking well water. Um, you can see here his weight height is 5'11", and his weight is 145 pounds. His physical exam is significant for the following. He's a thin male and no distress. He has a blood pressure of 120 over 80, a pulse of 90, and a respiratory rate of 18. His sclera anecteric, he has several aphthous ulcers in the buccal mucosa and at the gum line. His abdomen is tender to palpation in the mid-epigastric left upper quadrant and both lower quadrants. On perianal exam, he has severe rectal tenderness. He has very large skin tags, and he has a large visible ulcer in the anal canal. No masses or hepatosplenomegaly. So we'll have a challenge question. Given Jack's presentation, which of the following would not be part of his initial routine diagnostic testing? A, labs, including a CBC, ESR, CRP, and fecal calprotectin. B, ileal colonoscopy with biopsy. C, small bowel imaging with a CT enterography. Or D, deep enteroscopy. So the correct answer is D, deep enteroscopy. Jack's clinical presentation is consistent with Crohn's disease. In order to, deter to confirm the diagnosis, the initial workup should include the labs listed, a CBC, ESR, CRP, and fecal calprotectin, an ileocolonoscopy with biopsies, and small bowel imaging with either a CT enterography or MR enterography. Deep enteroscopy is not a part of routine diagnostic testing. Moving on with Jack's case, Jack's blood work revealed an elevated CRP at 4, an ESR rate that was elevated at 97, and a fecal calprotectin that was elevated at 350. His stool was negative for a C. diff infection. His colonoscopy revealed perianal skin tags, multiple ulcers in the anus, rectum, sigmoid, and descending colon. 
Biopsies revealed patchy, severe, chronic active colitis with non-necrotizing granuloma and stain negative for cytomegalovirus. CT enterography revealed thickened segments of the distal and terminal ileum and the entire colon. So based on endoscopies, biopsies, and laboratory values, Jack's diagnosis is Crohn's ileocolitis. His treatment options include induction of remission with steroids, um, use of an immunomodulator such as a thiopurine or methotrexate, a biologic therapy, or a combination of biologics and immunomodulator. If he has no response to initial treatment, um, he may have more medical therapy if he has continued ongoing active inflammation or surgical intervention if he has fibrostenotic disease that would not respond to our current therapies. Moving on, we'll talk a little bit more about the diagnostics of inflammatory bowel disease. The first goal of management in IBD is to obtain a clear and accurate diagnosis. A clear diagnosis should provide information that explains the patient's current symptoms and problems, provides prognostic information, and makes a distinction in the management decision such that therapy chosen now affects both the short and the long-term outcomes. We need to think both about disease activity, which is the short term, how the patient is doing right now, and the disease severity, which includes prognostic factors and risks for disease progression. For the clinical diagnosis of IBD, we want to think about things such as how symptoms start. What does the patient mean by diarrhea, abdominal pain, or bleeding? Think about red flags such as nocturnal symptoms, weight loss, anemia. Family history can be helpful, um, extra-intestinal manifestations such as joint pains or mouth sores, eye inflammation, um, a fullness or a mass on abdominal exam, and a perianal exam in, in, to investigate for perianal disease. The clinical features of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Um, in ulcerative colitis, there's continuous inflammation involving the colon only. Um, the pathology is more consistent with superficial inflammation. It can have a variable extent. It can be limited to the rectum, can, can go up to the left side of the colon, or can involve the whole colon. We know that there's a colon cancer risk um, with time with ulcerative colitis, and extra-intestinal manifestations can occur. In Crohn's disease, there's patchy inflammation anywhere from the mouth to the anus. Uh, the pathology can reveal full thickness inflammation. Complications such as fistulas and structures can develop, and there is a risk of cancer both in the small bowel if inflammation is located there or the colon if inflammation is located in the colon. Extra-intestinal manifestations can occur in Crohn's disease as well. Some considerations in the differential diagnosis of IBD um, are functional symptoms, microscopic colitis, infectious colitis, including C. diff, ischemic colitis, drug-induced enterocolitis, which could include a drug such as NSAIDs, solitary rectal ulcer syndrome, diversion colitis, radiation enterocolitis, endometriosis, malignancy, or diverticular-associated colitis. In refining the diagnosis of IBD, there are several tools at our disposal. One is ileocolonoscopy with biopsy. Fecal calprotectin is a test um, that is approved to distinguish between irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. Reliable expert pathology interpretation of biopsies. Evaluation of the small bowel, which can be done with CT enterography, MR enterography, or video capsule endoscopy. For perianal disease, sometimes examination under anesthesia with a colorectal surgeon is necessary. 
rarely necessary is an exploratory laparotomy. There are some other clues we can use in our diagnosis, such as family history or serologies. The importance of an accurate colonoscopy and upper endoscopy and IBD is really quite high. So the first colonoscopy is very important in really describing where the disease is located and the severity. And it's really important that in our reports, we're really specific um, about that. The staging exam should include assessment of both the ileum and the colon, assessment of the ileocecal valve for strictures. If you can't intubate the ileum, it's important to discuss why that might have been, if it was because of a strictured valve. Um, or not, biopsies of areas that are normal as well as those that are abnormal, accurate endoscopy report to really help the pathologist interpret what he or she sees as well as to help other medical providers understand the extent and severity of the disease. An upper endoscopy is useful for identifying upper GI tract involvement that may be suggestive of Crohn's disease as well. The IBD diagnostic algorithm for the first presentation. To start with, we do labs, the CBC, CRP, LFTs, and albumin, and stool study, such as the calprotectin. Um, then we move on to upper and lower endoscopy with duodenal, ileal, and colonic biopsies. If that's suggestive of Crohn's disease, we complete the staging workup with small bowel imaging with a CT enterography, MR enterography, or small bowel follow-through. If those studies are normal, but there's still a high suspicion, um, small bowel imaging should be pursued with CT or MRI. If that's normal, a video capsule endoscopy could be then pursued. If endoscopy and biopsies are consistent with ulcerative colitis, um, then at that point, a treatment can be initiated. The Mayo score can be used to assess UC severity at endoscopy. A Mayo score of zero indicates normal, there's no active disease. One is mild disease with erythema, decreased vascular pattern, mild friability. Mayo two is moderate inflammation that has marked erythema, um, absent vascular pattern, friability, and erosions. Mayo three is characterized by spontaneous bleeding and ulcers. In Crohn's disease, we use the simple endoscopic score for Crohn's disease assessment during endoscopy. This assigns um, a value from zero to three for each segment that's examined, including the ileum in each segment of the colon. The score um, is comprised of the size of the ulcers noted, the ulcerated surface area, the total affected surface area, and the presence or absence of a stenosis. In making the diagnosis, a careful history and physical exam is used in combination with clinical, radiographic, endoscopic, and histologic findings to make the diagnosis. We'll then have a challenge question. Given that Jack has moderate to severe Crohn's disease, which of the following is the most appropriate initial therapy? A, oral mesalamine, B, azathioprine, C, vetalizumab, D, cyclosporin. The correct answer is C, betalizumab. For patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease and active inflammation, anti-integrin therapy with betalizumab can be considered for induction or remission. Oral mesalamine, ezathioprine, and cyclosporine should not be used for induction or remission in Crohn's disease. We'll now turn to medical management of IBD. The goals of therapy for IBD are to induce and maintain remission, restore and maintain nutrition, minimize complications, avoid surgery or select the optimal timing for surgery, enhance the quality of life, and achieve mucosal healing. Based on 
recent patient focus group findings conducted by the foundation, it's important to have a direct conversation with patients about what remission looks like, how likely they are to achieve it, and how long the remission might last. Patients aren't quite sure whether to expect some level of ongoing symptoms due to their diagnosis or whether um, they can expect a complete return um, to normalcy and, and their quality of life that they had before their diagnosis. It's important to talk about how you're going to assess that and what they can expect. Uh, there are many medication classes that are um, FDA-approved therapies for ulcerative colitis. We'll talk about these in detail um, in the slides to come, but in general, the classes include the five aminosalicylic acids, steroids, immunomodulators, JAK inhibitors, S1P receptor modulators, and biologics, which include the anti-TNF medications, anti-integrin, and anti-IL-1223. The therapeutic approach for Crohn's disease, the therapeutic selection should be based on the disease phenotype, the disease severity, and the prognostic factors. If the patient's at high risk for disease progression, early therapy with biologics is warranted in order to achieve mucosal healing. Now we'll take the drug classes one at a time. Aminosalicylate drugs, or 5-ASAs, are used for mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. They vary in their sites of delivery. So some of the medications, such as sulfasalazine, olsalazine, or balsalazide, are targeted for colonic release. Um, other formulations, such as delayed-release mesalamine, MMX mesalamine, or granulated mesalamine, are targeted to release in the terminal ileum and colon. Controlled-release mesalamine um, can release into the duodenum ileum and colon. So it's important to choose the formulation that will be delivered to the site of your patient's inflammation. There's a very low incidence of serious side effects. Agranulocytosis occurs just in 6 of 10,000 patients. Pancreatitis occurs in 7.5 of 1 million prescriptions. And interstitial nephritis occurs in 6 of 10,000 patients, which is the same as in the general population. So these really are very low-risk therapies. Corticosteroids are fast-acting. Um, you can use an oral steroid plus a 5-ASA for moderate to severe active IBD. We can use oral, rectal, or IV delivery if necessary. We also have controlled-release budesonide for mild to moderate Crohn's that's combined to the ileum or right colon, as well as controlled-release budesonide um, for ulcerative colitis delivered to the colon. Steroids should only be used to achieve remission. They are not appropriate for maintenance due to the risk of serious side effects. Um, steroids occur, uh, cause adrenal suppression and metabolic disturbances, including diabetes, cataracts, and glaucoma, cognitive impairment, psychosis, emotional disturbance, high blood pressure, infections, including bacterial sepsis, myopathy, osteoporosis, osteonecrosis, pseudotumor, cerebri. We really know that these are high-risk therapies should, that should only be used for the shortest time necessary. Immunomodulators include thiopurine, such as azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine. Um, those are oral therapies that are used to maintain remission in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. They have a slow onset of action and take about 6 to 12 weeks to work, um, and so they are therefore not appropriate for induction of remission. Because of that, they're often given with corticosteroids or in combination with anti-TNF medications, both of which can induce remission. There are some serious side effects that are associated with thiopurines, such as pancreatitis, which occurs in about 4% of people, allergy, 
bone marrow suppression, liver toxicity, serious infections, lymphoma, the risk of lymphoma is about four to five times higher than the general population, and non-melanoma skin cancers such as squamous cell or basal cell skin cancer. The risk of those skin cancers is five to seven times higher than the general population. Methotrexate um, can be used intramuscular, subcutaneously, or oral. It is not proven to be effective in ulcerative colitis. Um, however, it can be used to induce and maintain remission in Crohn's disease. Serious side effects of methotrexate include bone marrow suppression, acute and chronic liver toxicity, serious infection, nephrotoxicity, and severe dermatologic reactions. It's absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy. It's also contraindicated in breastfeeding. Cyclosporin um, can be used IV for acute severe steroid refractory ulcerative colitis. Anti-TNF therapies um, can be used for moderate to severe inflammatory bowel disease. There are four FDA-approved anti-TNF therapies. Adalimumab and infliximab are approved for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Sertilizumab-Pagol is approved for Crohn's only, and golimumab is approved for ulcerative colitis only. Infliximab is given as an IV infusion, and there are others, adalimumab, sertilizumab, and golimumab are given as sub-Q injections. The efficacy appears similar between these therapies. The toxicity profiles are also similar, though they do differ in their delivery routes. The safety issues to think about with anti-TNF therapy are rare, but there are some serious side effects that can occur. Um, so skin cancers can occur, um, demyelinating disorders, um, new onset psoriasis, liver toxicity, a reactivation of hepatitis B, when this is one of the reasons we check for hepatitis B before starting anti-TNF therapy, chronic heart failure, um, anti-TNF medications are contraindicated in people with class 3 or 4 heart failure, immunogenicity, you can form anti-drug antibodies to anti-TNF therapy, and there are some autoimmune reactions. You can have what's called a lupus-like reaction to anti-TNF therapy. Moving on then to natalizumab and vetalizumab, the anti-integrins. Um, these medications are both integrin receptor antagonists. Vetalizumab appears to be gut selective. Um, they, have, they differ in their indications. Natalizumab is approved for Crohn's disease only. It is not commonly used um, now that we have vetalizumab. Vetalizumab can be used for both ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. There is a risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML. Um, it is rare with natalizumab, um, and there have been no cases to date with vetalizumab. You can test for antibodies to the JC or John Cunningham virus um, to assess risk for this condition, um, though this is not commonly done with vetalizumab. Close monitoring is important. Do not combine these drugs with each other or an anti-TNF agent, or combine natalizumab with an immunomodulator. Eustachinumab is an anti-P40 monoclonal antibody that blocks IL-12 and IL-23 binding to their receptors. Um, it, it is indicated for moderate to severe Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and it's given as a one-time IV loading dose followed by a sub-Q injection every eight weeks. Serious events um, with this medication can occur, which include infections, TB, malignancies, non-infection, pneumonia. Rare but very serious would be reverse posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome, or RPLS. That's a rare and potentially fatal syndrome that is separate and distinct from PML. 
It's characterized by headache, confusion, seizures, and visual loss. Janus kinase inhibitors, or JAK inhibitors, include tofacitinib, which is an oral small molecule inhibitor of JAKs 1 through 3, so it's a non-selective JAK inhibitor. It's currently approved for adults with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who are intolerant to or have failed anti-TNF therapy. Filgotinib is a a more selective JAK1 inhibitor. It's being investigated for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but does not yet have an IBD indication. Upadacitinib is a selective JAK1 inhibitor that's approved for adults with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who are intolerant to or have failed anti-TNF therapy. There are several other JAK inhibitors that are also under investigation for IBD. Ozanamod is a sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulator. It is approved for moderate to severely active ulcerative colitis in adults, and it's an oral small molecule inhibitor as well. Uh, the serious adverse effects associated with ozanamod include infections, cardiovascular risk, it can cause bradyarrhythmia, AV conduction delays, um, and that's why a pretreatment ECG is necessary to look for heart block, um, liver injury, fetal risk, it's contraindicated in pregnancy at this time, decline in pulmonary function, and macular edema. Rizinkizumab um, is a selective IgG1 antibody that binds to the P19 subunit and blocks IL-23 specifically. It is given as three IV infusions followed by an on-body injector um, every eight weeks. It's currently approved for moderate to severe Crohn's disease, plaque psoriasis, and psoriatic arthritis. Adverse events include infections, including tuberculosis, eczema, and rash. Biosimilars are a similar copy of an originator biologic therapy. They're not an identical copy because they can differ in the glycosylation. There are many comparative and bioequivalent studies in IBD for the anti-TNFs, infleximab and adalimab with their biosimilar. The safety profile is consistent with the originator biologic. Providers should be having a discussion with and educating patients on biosimilars due to the changing regulatory environment and the implications it has for patients. I often tell my patients that um, biosimilars have been studied, that they have comparative efficacy, and single switch between originators and biosimilars has been studied and found to be safe. If patients develop an anti-drug antibody to an originator drug, they cannot switch to the biosimilar of the same drug. Those antibodies would um, cross-react. There are several biosimilars that are available for IBD. For infliximab, there are three biosimilars that are both FDA-approved as well as available. For adalimumab, there are three biosimilars that are FDA-approved but not yet available. For infliximab, there is also unbranded infliximab, which is different than a biosimilar in that it's identical to the originator drug, which is also now approved and available. In summary, of these IBD treatments, five ASA agents are effective and safe for induction and maintenance of remission in patients with mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. Systemic and conventional steroids are effective for induction, but they are never to be used for maintenance because they have so many adverse effects and side effects. Immunomodulators that are most often used to treat IBD are azathioprine, 6-MP, methotrexate. Those are slow-acting medications that are not good for induction but can be used for maintenance of remission. And cyclosporin, which can be used as a salvage therapy for induction or remission and ulcerative colitis. 
Biologics such as anti-TNF agents, vetalizumab, and ustekinumab are effective for induction and maintenance of remission in patients with moderate to severe IVD. The role of biosimilars and their place in the treatment paradigm needs further exploration. Earlier use of biologics in Crohn's disease and possibly severe ulcerative colitis can improve outcomes. Surgery is not a failure of treatment. It's sometimes a necessary component of the treatment of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. We'll now turn to future directions for IBD prognostics and evaluation of treatment targets. So there are a few risk stratification tools that are available or in development in the United States. Um, the first one is a Crohn's disease prognostic laboratory panel. Um, and this tool uses clinical information and lab data to provide an individualized risk profile for Crohn's disease three-year risk of serious complications. Um, it takes into account um, the disease location, some serologic data such as the anti-Saccharomyces cerevisiae antibody, anti-flagellin or Zebra 1 antibody and P ANCA, as well as genetic data for a NOD2 frameship mutation or SNP13. Um, there's also a Crohn's disease prognostic profile that uses a blood sample to assess for the presence of four antibodies to determine complication risk. Um, and it's associated with complicated disease behavior um, or surgery, increase with the number and concentration of those antibodies. Um, there's a, another Crohn's prognostic panel that uses blood samples to analyze four serologic and genetic markers to provide probability of Crohn's disease progression. And then there's a real-time PCR test for IBD that, again, is looking at some gene expression to assess individualized risk. So these tools are in development and may assist in looking at the overall prognosis of patients. Um, in thinking about evaluating what is the most appropriate therapy for patients, um, we need to think about a few different factors. Anti-TNF immunogenicity is common amongst those with IBD, and that can lead to loss of response or infusion reactions. There is now some testing available to help us um, predict this. There's the anti-TNF immunogenicity risk testing via blood-based genetic test. Um, so this is a genetic test to identify variant characters of HLA-DQA105, um, which is an allele that's associated with increased immunogenicity and development of anti-drug antibodies against anti-TNF therapy. If you do have that allele, there's a seven-fold increased risk of developing um, anti-infliximab antibodies in patients um, that are carriers of this. Um, and so it can inform decisions regarding anti-TNF therapy level monitoring. Um, and it can help you assess for risk prior to starting therapy. Um, in terms of thiopurines, there's TPMT or thiopurine methyltransferase um, testing. You can test for that enzyme's activity. Or, um, and you can also test um, for nude T15 um, genotyping. And this will help you predict potential for toxicity to the thiopurine drugs, such as 6-MP, 6-thioguanine, or azathioprine. Um, there are some um, treatment target testing um, that is under development. There's a test for monitoring of Crohn's disease. It's a serum test to evaluate biomarkers of mucosal damage, and it can provide an endoscopic healing index score. Um, and it's useful for periodic assessment um, in in, of endoscopic disease activity in Crohn's disease. There's also an ulcerative colitis response index, which is a blood test to evaluate biomarkers for the detection of mucosal healing after anti-TNF treatment. 
So thank you for participating in this CME activity. Please don't forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive CME credit. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And this activity is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Coherus Biosciences, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.